shit from anything else in here. Yeah. So, oh, it actually puts in break there, like it, yeah. it shows where the break was. Yeah. Um, so, I was thinking about, well, I really just wanted to get back to why I thought uh, the contemporary case of, of Lebanon was so, so interesting is in some way it goes back to this idea of democratic authority where you have a people authorizing a set of laws that to, to govern themselves in a political system where you have typically you will, you will have like representation like a representative mm. democracy of parliaments and so on and the thing about lebanon is that lebanon is a very uh, a diverse society not in the sense where you have so in some countries you have like one majority and a small let's say five percent minority whose rights are or have to be should be respected mm -hmm. uh, sometimes they have some autonomy over a particular region now lebanon does not really have one dominant majority i, I believe about 55 60 percent of the country is muslim and the rest is, is mostly christian and then the muslims are again divided between shia and sunni so you have a very so that, that i mean it can lead to an impasse very quickly of course because you have yeah. like if no one yeah. wants to cooperate they won't so the way uh, Lebanon was organized originally, so in the 40s when it became an independent country, this was not enshrined in law as far as I know, but as a sort of general overarching norm. I read one article where it was called a gentleman's agreement. So it's like, this is just how we do things. So that positions of authority were divided among those groups so that I believe the president uh, always has to be a Maronite Catholic, Prime Minister has to be either Sunni or Shia Muslim, and then the Speaker of the House the other. So this kind of, so this sort of consociational uh, system, which is is fairly common as a method of conflict resolution. So Bosnia has this, for example. Uh, so does Rwanda. And I think one problem with it is that it sort of institutionalizes these these differences, which also preempts the formation of a of a sort of more unified civic identity. So. Um, now, fast forward to the Lebanese civil war in the 80s, and you had exactly these uh, sort of sectarian divisions that were fighting against each other. And then the Taif agreements in, I believe, 1988 uh, sort of reinstalled these divisions, now enshrined them into law, but also in the agreement, uh, which was initially a peace agreement as well, proposed that these sort of sectarian divisions are to be phased out but maintain them for the moment to sort of maintain a degree of stability. Now what is unique about these protests is that there are no leaders. So what you'd see in previous protests is that one of these different groups in Lebanese society would protest because they, they believe their rights uh, or their position in society is being undermined. They would have leaders from their own background and now what you have is all these people just coming together in opposition to this system. So there were a couple of protesters who were interviewed in, in one of the articles I sent you before who said that they felt like this is the first time a truly sort of pan-Lebanese yeah. civic identity was, was manifesting itself. a lot itself. of flags as well, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah. Like the Lebanese. And the, the, the really interesting thing is, is, is and I guess with a lot of um, protests, the role of the army, it, it tends to be very interesting so, of course, like the way the army responds, this was in Tunisia, 2011, this was uh, decisive as well. Because if uh, things might have turned out much worse if the army had uh, decided to not side with the, the demonstrators in the end. And the thing about Lebanon is, uh, as far as I'm aware, is that the army is one of the only institutions 
that is in fact not as strongly affected by these sectarian divisions and therefore it is also one of the most widely respected institutions across the entire society which of course makes it very difficult for the because the army was called in to prevent the protests from escalating and they had to uh, intervene a number of times uh, well they had to they were ordered to and but at the same time obviously the people serving in the army are also um, they're also citizens and they see that and they they and the interesting thing is that they are so let's assume for the, for the time being that the army is indeed, as, as many people believe it to be, an institution unaffected by these uh, sectarian divisions, or at least much less so, where it is really a Lebanese army instead of a Sunni yeah. Muslim uh, army or a Catholic army or, or something like that, where they were already part of an institution that was sort of a, maintained a sort of broader Lebanese identity or, or an idea thereof. And where they now see uh, something like such an identity, a sort of political civic identity emerging through these protests. Yeah. So that's what I found very interesting about, yeah. about this case that you have for the first time. Like conceptually, democracy is, is the idea that you have a demos, uh, a people, is, is, is how it's usually yeah. translated, that, that authorizes, representative authorizes laws, that votes in elections, that has the, the possibility to protest against particular policies and laws and so on. But now, of course, you can question whether the idea of such a sort of unified people makes sense or if, it, if it's normatively desirable. But in any case... It's there. The it's idea, not there the, the, the idea is there, yeah, but it's also, I think... The, I, I don't think you, sh you have to see it as a sort of a unit, very much unified in the sense of like the nation being one of that sort of idea. But uh, there has to be, a, for, for a democracy to function in this way, there has to be some degree of sort of, I guess, a shared sense of we're all in this together, so we have to cooperate to make it work. And for that, you need some sort of idea that you are in this together. And that, that was something that was lacking in, in Lebanon before, what's really emerging right now. But in, uh, would you then say on the scale of civil disobedience to revolution? That, where would you place this? Also, mm. in, in thinking about where this is going, I mean, if there's well, an, if there's institutions that are not, in the sense, national and, yeah. de and democratic, yeah, in, in this more unifying terms, then they have to be replaced. But you can also say, well, in a civil kind of way, like in moral terms of or or in normative terms, it's yeah. it's, it's it's a prime example of civil disobedience, like. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's very difficult, because of course I don't know, uh, because no one knows where it is going, because it's still ongoing right now, but I think the more difficult question is is the fact that there's not, not really an objective measure of yeah. the skill but from civil disobedience to revolution, if we if, if you believe that there is such a skill and it's not a radically but, but, but different for, thing. But for, for, for Rawls, or, or the, the theories that we've talked about, like the restrictive, like we have just the state and it's already... Yeah, a, a collection of citizens. Then you can talk about civil disobedience, but that won't really apply in this case. So now you have to no. the broader theory of civil, and and it has to deal with these kinds of things. Yeah. So there is democracy. Some people say it's about citizenship to civility. Yeah. But the institutions do not. Yeah. I think it would be important here to think of what representations of civil disobedience do we have available 
because we, yeah. we imagine something and we define something based on what is available to us. So I'm trying to yeah, uh, link this to cultural representations of uh, civil disobedience mm. and think of their rep repercussions on society. Yeah. So what is available to us in imagining uh, civil disobedience? So, so in, in, in what sense, like, do you mean like, on what previous examples can we draw to... I, yeah, but also, yeah. I was thinking of the articles you sent us. So this is a specific representation of yeah. civil disobedience. I was also thinking of the, the Joker film. It depends on what you have already seen. Yeah. Also, add uh, your, maybe also an example close to your heart, the Georgia example. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 did you see that one? There was like this techno party raid in the description. Or? Yeah, just a brief uh, uh, sort of summary of, of what happened there. So, this was back in two thousand seventeen, I believe. No, eighteen. Eighteen. Two thousand eighteen. Yeah, spring of two thousand eighteen. So, as a basic thing, Georgia is a, a very conservative country. Over officially, it's a secular country, but the I mean, in the sort of social sphere. The, the church has massive influence. And so, for example, uh, homosexuality is, is, is decriminalized, it's illegal to discriminate against, but still discrimination yeah, but is, is widespread. It has this to do with also they want to join the EU, right? So I, in this documentary, it's like... Yeah, well... They were like... Uh, talk in this way of saying like this, this uh, interviewer asked, oh, this is not uh, really good for your image. Uh, if you want to join uh, Europe, this raid and stuff like that. And they were already talking, no, 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 it's legitimate. It was talking like... Yeah, no, I mean... Rolls yeah, in terms. yeah no, no, possible. But just to, to yeah, go no, back no, to no. just... Uh, there's a number of places in, in Tbilisi, uh, but two clubs specifically, which were widely seen as sort of safe, safe spaces for the LGBT community in, in the country, where generally they were free to, to be who they are and... Um, but as I mean, most most other places, the club scene is also associated with drugs. So it's at least very easy for uh, the authorities to make this connection, and at least claim that they are raiding those clubs to to intervene in drug trade going on, or they allege is going on there. So I guess what what I what I find interesting uh, about that in the context of discussions about protests and civil disobedience is that for a part it's also about um, who gets to appear in uh, in public spaces. So what happened is that uh, on one night police raided two clubs in Tbilisi, Bassiani and uh, Cafe Gallery and arrested a number of people. Uh, there were widespread allegations of abuse of power, just disproportionate use of force and so on. The result was that within about 12 hours, the square in front of the parliament in, in Tbilisi was filled with thousands of mostly young people, so under, let's say, 30 years of age. They brought uh, a sound system and they just organized their techno rave there. So the interesting thing is that you have a very marginalized space of appearance for, in this case, the LGBT community and others who are much more liberally minded than, than they perceive the rest of society to be. And whether or not it was actively against that or the, the, the police was really trying to arrest drug dealers and so on, it was widely perceived as uh, repressing that, that already marginalized space of appearance. The direct result was that they all of a sudden gained a massive 
visibility in the country and internationally as well. And this is also, and that goes back to, to some elements of civil disobedience, like the, the dramatizing aspect it can have. So, so blocking busy intersections, for example, which is also a specific thing about, that's why, why that place is so, so fascinating in that regard, uh, about Tbilisi, which is part of just poor urban planning. A uh, part of it is just geography. But the, um, so Tbilisi is situated in a, a fairly narrow valley. It's a large city, and for its traffic, it's reliant on a number of, of main avenues. Mm, so take notes, people, for a successful revolution, <laughs> you have to find the correct, you know, the proper geographical oh, location. Yeah, it, it does help, yeah. yeah. So, so the thing is, uh, Rustavelli Avenue is, is one of oh, the nobody's main... Nobody's going to let me share, <laughs> just um, so you know. Is, is one of the, no, it's one of the main avenues. Uh, uh, He's given instructions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, 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 <laughs> oh, no, but, but, I mean, I mean I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm not giving instructions. Like, everyone who has ever tried to protest in Georgia knows this, because, because <laughs> protests in Georgia always take place there. And the reason why is that Rusa Valley Avenue is one of the main traffic arteries in the city. Uh, the parliament is also located there. So combine those two things, you have immediate attention. If you blockade Rusa Valley Avenue, uh, the entire city grinds to a halt, so then you immediately have everyone's attention. Uh, so this this really speaks to the sort of dramatizing aspects it can have, where you uh, very forcibly sort of you force some issue into into uh, public visibility, basically, and that's what I guess in some way ironically happened uh, in this case, where you have. I mean, let's assume for the moment that it was an attempt at repressing a marginalized visibility where you have this attempt and its result is, is a sort of explosion of visibility, not only within the country itself, but also internationally. Uh, so that's, that's one thing I found, uh, I found very interesting about that case uh, specifically. It was very civil, it very was civil. <laughs> like it yeah, but they took qualifies. drugs. They, did, they, they took drugs. Oh, not uh, really. <laughs> I don't know if they did. Um, <laughs> uh, well, it's, 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 it's a funny way of, uh, uh, I guess, Making a political point, <laughs> organizing a, a rave in front of uh, yeah. in front of the parliament. Yeah, it was because also it supported by a lot of international DJs. And, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I, absolutely. Let's, let's give some credit to techno music generally. Is has had some uh, beneficial like connections with the LGBT. Oh yeah, absolutely, and especially in these sorts of contexts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, also because uh, particularly Bassiani, this this club has uh, apparently. Uh, I'm I'm. Absolutely not very uh, very much uh, uh, knowledgeable about the, the the techno scene, but apparently it's it has a pretty uh, uh, big reputation in Europe at least as as a sort of uh, is one of the reasons why some people have have called Tbilisi a sort of new Berlin. Wow. So yeah, it, I mean it, it's got some uh, some international reputation. So this leads to international solidarity and. That also puts, of course, especially if you have a government that tries to, to become closer to the European Union, that puts a lot of international pressure on this government yeah. to, to sort of sort this thing out and, and uh, yeah, not repress it immediately. Because it, like, they know like we are in the spotlight right now yeah. and we should watch what we do. So the people who rave, they did this intentionally. So they, they qualified the intentionality part of civil disobedience. No, no, I don't think they were... were so, you think they, so you think they didn't? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Of course, they raved afterwards, yeah. Oh. But, but like, um, but you may know more about this, but they were in the club, there was a rave, then they were thrown out, 
and then they just and the, yeah it was like mo- a spontaneous reaction on the uh, yeah that they yeah, were yeah, like yeah. in in process to to, to what they they saw as as uh, disproportionate use of force abuse of power a repression of, of marginalized was, political spaces but it was no law like the most restrictive and maybe we should not even talk about it, but the most restrictive is there should be a law and it's intentionally broken and then it's a civil disobedience yeah well I mean well I mean you you, you're not allowed to stand on the road so I mean in that in that sense like blockading a, a main traffic artery is, is already breaking a law obviously yeah. and that that's one of the, the one of the primary examples of, of indirect civil yeah, disobedience yeah, 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 the yeah, same what we talked about before with the uh, with regards to to extinction rebellion yeah and and it usually would function as a way of just drawing extra attention to to a particular issue you consider to be important yeah. and it's i mean it's a it's a common thing about uh like like, like i said like in Tbilisi, the demonstrations almost always happen there yeah. for that very reason that it's like you immediately have everyone's attention but that's sad, so sad that you didn't watch the joker movie otherwise you could <laughs> now make the nice uh, comparison with the joker movie there's also some kind of a party it's like a, a, a feast Mm-hmm. Like and people don't care about rules anymore. It's like more like a riot. I think we were actually we were uh, discussing today in class Richard the Third, and there yeah. was a very passionate. He's one of Shakespeare's most famous villains. Uh, he is a hero and a villain at the same time. And someone compared uh, compared Richard to the Joker. Said because he has because he was ill formed historically. Yeah. That's yeah. true. He was um, treated in such a way, you know, with such hatred from his mother. Like he faced all this abuse from his society, which kind of not justifies his villainous ways, but kind of makes us empathize with yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. The same way that you know the, the the effect of empathy was very strong with the, yeah, the Joker yeah, movie, yeah, yeah. very strong. Yeah. We keep mentioning the Joker because I brought in our preparatory meeting because we are very formal and we do preparatory <laughs> meetings. Um, I brought to uh, these guys um, a story from Greece where apparently in uh, one uh, viewing of uh, the Joker, uh, a mother uh, phoned the police because her son had uh, been to the cinema to see the movie, although he was just 15 years old. And the movie is supposed to be uh, 18... Uh, it's supposed to be for adults. Um, and she phoned the police, and the police actually came and actually arrested a bunch of 15-year-olds. So uh, the pe- people went crazy. There was such a reaction in Twitter. I, I, I loved reading the memes. Uh, they were all like, you know, playing puns on the, the Joker Athens uh, thing, and they were saying, uh, you know, Gotham is not going to rule over Athens anymore. <laughs> Uh, thanks to this government, or that uh, those uh, fifteen-year-olds were arrested, and uh, it was f- uh, in their pockets. It was found a small amount of popcorn. <laughs> you know, like they were carrying drugs or whatever. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, it m- made people also ask questions of why did uh, the authorities see yeah. fit to actually arrest fifteen-year-olds for watching a movie? And is there something about this movie that? might be potentially uh, radical, might be potentially, uh, I don't know, uh, influencing, uh, leading people towards an anti-state position. Mm, So it made people ask questions about art, about representations of civil disobedience, and uh, whether they could instill in in you, the audience, I don't know, the need to rebel yourself, or the need to take such a stance. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, yeah. 
I mean, that's why it's also such a, a movie that was really there in the public debate and it's everywhere. Mm. It's like, it's like, um, you know, you like popular. Or love it. Yeah, but it's but it's also in the air. Yeah. Like in the Netherlands, we haven't seen this for a long time, but now in like three weeks, first the farmers went with their big uh, tractors. Yeah. On on the on, and and they, and they were actually the army had to come in to try to stop them, but they didn't even. And they reached like some police. To Man, and they went to the, the national uh, demonstration spot in Netherlands. It was yeah. just a field which was not allowed to have big uh, vehicles on it, but they went anyway. And then two weeks later, there were the the builders, right? Mm. So they also did this like protest, big protest, not just a normal like civil protest, but like a oh. more like of a also bringing the big vehicles, yeah, trucks, and, and, yeah. and ignoring police orders and and stuff like that. Yeah. They were. But but it's in the air. Like the, the 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 Joker movie really touches on this thing. Like should be because this is what happens in the movie as well. Like he yeah. kills a couple of rich uh, bastards. Yeah, bullies. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and and he becomes a hero. Yeah. Without yeah. without the intention of yeah. making a political statement, yeah. suddenly the people see this yeah. as a statement against yeah. the oppression of uh, the rich in Gotham, and yeah. you know, it becomes a symbol. Yeah. And 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 maybe there's a difference between that and the the other two. With the, these were really like targeted protests against the government, but the joke movie is just more like a rage, like yeah. just fuck these laws. And yeah, I think you can. That's well, that's yeah, well, I think I think what's interesting about that is that it's uh, in many cases where such protests, like so so I, if we go back to the problem of of intentionality, maybe something was not intention to do. To have a particular aim, to overthrow a system, or to change the government, to get rid of a president or whatever, but turns out to 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 have that effect, and and its aims change over time. So, Arab Spring in two thousand eleven started with, um, the self-immolation of a, uh, I think market salesman in in Tunisia, who did this in in protest against harassment and. and corruption by, by local police officers. This then turned into, very quickly actually, turned into a sort of symbol for the general corruption in the system uh, that Tunisia had at the time. Same, same goes for Lebanon, where you have the, the direct cause of these protests was a proposed tax on WhatsApp messages, which in itself is a silly thing, I guess, but it was just like this one, uh, yeah. the, just the last drop, basic, t then turn into a symbol for for everything that people consider to be wrong with the society they lived in. Yeah. So in in this this case, uh, I guess like something being unintentional. Like if something is unintentional, it doesn't mean it has it has to remain unintentional forever, right? No. You can you cannot intention you cannot have the intention of of getting rid of a president, but through protests, also like. These collective events and process, like people from different backgrounds, different with different ideas, come together for a variety of reasons, but who have nonetheless something in common, and as such, like their general demands or their general opinion on the government or something or uh, on a general system might change over time. So then, it, then it can turn into uh, a demand, for example, for the president to or a prime minister or a government to step down 
for a certain element in a, in a particular political system to be changed and so on. So I don't quite remember where I was going with I don't know. Do you remember? I mean, uh, Arab Spring, of course, but that was also the time of Occupy, right? At the same mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. Wasn't it, I don't remember it really clearly anymore, but wasn't it that they did, didn't really have demands? Or they, they didn't really have leaders, but did they have demands? Or they even didn't, well, we didn't prepare this, so we don't know, really know. But the, like, it was just this idea of just, it's enough. That's the idea, like, we have had enough, we have no clear idea what we want to do, we have no intentions, we just say, we don't want to participate in, we want to just Yeah, stop, well, I mean, it was a... It w there was so there was a I think the most sort of the broadest sort uh, point they 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 tried to make I think was the the politico economic system that was definitely not favouring the people in general but just a few like well off economic elites which relates to like widespread austerity programs um, in various countries and so on. but of course there were there was a variety uh, of demands going on I think this is very interesting way of seeing the, the, the political philosophy of someone like Ernesto Laclau, where in a sort of very basic sense, what he calls uh, calls populism is uh, a variety, well, it's not the whole story, but so you have a variety of people who come together to protest against, for example, a government or a system who have all various demands but who are nonetheless united in the fact that the demands are not met. Uh, that's what he calls like a chain of equivalence. So they become like equivalent demands, like we all have our problems with this system because it's not working for us. But one, uh, one person might object that austerity is getting so bad that just people are unable to feed their families, get medical care. Others might complain that uh, climate justice is something that is not being addressed sufficiently by, by governments and so on. And they all unite in the fact that they say like this current system the way it works right now it's not working for us and there's a variety of reasons they all have different reasons to to make that objection but the sort of unifying aspect of it is that they have objections to make in the first place which are not being met yeah i was going to ask you about because I'm, I'm thinking you necessarily have to do some research on the psychology of the masses like you do your research on what mobilizes people you say it's different reasons but is there something more to that yeah like is there something on like perhaps a more sort of content independent thing that they have in common or you could say like when does a particular law policy whatever I might object to when does it affect me enough to actually go out and protest against it um, and there's a obviously there's a, a number of different aspects that play into this for example, you, you see very often mass, mass demonstrations is that the more people go, the more others are likely to go as well. So if you see a group of 100 people protesting, you might say, okay, well, th that's it then. Mm. If the next day there are 10,000, uh, you, you might say, like, even though you agreed with what the protesters were, were protesting against in the first place, then you, uh, but you might just say, like, yeah, I'm not going to, it's, it's not for me to do that or something. Then you see it's turning into such a mass movement that that does draw in more more people often. Same goes for, and that that's also where, we talked before about in, and now we slowly get back to the topic of, of sort of what you could call revolutions, I guess. But uh, as we talked about earlier about the role of the army and how they respond. And in many cases, this is also where sort of, a line is crossed and there's just no way back so you see this in ukraine in 2014 
where uh, the protests were already massive, but from the moment when Yanukovych um, ordered his ordered security services to to fire live ammunition at protesters, things went completely out of control. There were several immediately there were actually several municipalities in in other parts of Ukraine that didn't really declare themselves independent as such, but just said like this is this is not our government anymore. This is not our president. And many more people joined the protesters uh, in opposition to a government that was clearly shooting at its own people. So it is theoretically possible that at that point, if, if they had not elected to uh, fire live ammunition at their own people, the government could have remained in power somehow. But this is the point. They could have remained in power. And that's why like civilized governments won't shoot. Like It's a good tactic because you will keep the people from really being angry. You will keep them just nicely demonstrating for long times. Maybe I mean I'm sure that's true in some cases, I mean, but I, I would like to be a little bit less cynic uh, about that being just the only reason that governments don't shoot at people is because they want to remain in power. I would like to think that there are other reasons they don't shoot at people, but I'm sure in some cases it's true, absolutely, because of course like it presents a nuisance to many governments which they would rather not have. Yeah, and 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 you have. A possibility of civil war and, and Russia intervening. Yeah, I mean, well, that's, that's horrible. Yeah. So you would like to keep it civil and in, in the state and hopefully the government can change some of its policies. That's also yeah. Extinction Rebellion would, I don't know, I I, th I saw a demand of, of Extinction Rebellion of instituting a general assembly or something like a new democratic assembly Yeah. selected randomly uh, of the from the population, five hundred people who then have to decide on yeah. on on the climate uh, yeah. emergency. Yeah, I mean, it sounds a bit. I mean, there you, you of course we digress a little bit from the topic of civil disobedience, but this is the, the idea of sortition, uh, which is in. Uh, I mean, I, I'm by no means an expert on it, but it just in, in political theory, in democratic theory, you have this idea that this would actually be a, a preferable way of just creating more uh, uh, democratic legitimacy, getting better decisions, and just making basically decreasing the distance between the people in whose name decision, decisions are taken and the decisions that are actually taken. Because like, you bring those two much closer yeah, together. Yeah. And so once every, for example, once every year, you draw a random selection of, uh, of people from the general population who together debate on matters of policy and try to, to come to a I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit, I guess I'm agnostic about whether or not this is preferable. I think it, it would be no, interesting to see first on the local level at least, yeah, sure, again, sure. municipalities. But it's, the point was more like, um, there is civil disobedience by the XR rebellion, mm -hmm. but they direct their demands at the government, and they still see the government as some kind of a legitimate body that should implement this yeah. general assembly. So there's no revolution, right? So there, there's... There's always this um, no. legitimacy. Yeah, no, but it doesn't have to be a revolution. No, no, no. I mean, so it's I think so, uh, yeah, I think that's and so, I mean, the, the common view generally in, in, in theories of civil disobedience is that revolution is something different yeah. than civil disobedience. And I mean, there are varieties of uh, uh, theories how, how, how permissive they are, yeah. of course, but generally, like, people would like to well, see this as something different. What, what, is, what, what are you working towards? Do you have some ideas, like, what is your actual work? Um, like, is it so, uh, I mean, it's a bit different from what we've discussed so far, but what basically, in, 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 in theories of civil disobedience, uh, 
that's that's what I'm really right now working on. I think there are three different ways in which you can approach a theory of civil disobedience or defend the, the existence of this practice. One is a, a moral defense based on, on some conceptions of justice. That's what Rawls does. Or you can have a sort of more, I guess, individualist or possibly individualist uh, approach, which base, bases it on uh, some underlying idea of conscience. So that's, that's what Kimberly Brownlee does, for example. And she does not formulate a set of uh, rules like this is what this is the the kind of injustices or political problems you may address, which are which which can make civil disobedience legitimate. But the kind of convictions on the basis of which you disobey laws must be formed in a certain way to for for disobedience to be legitimate. Uh, so that's the moral uh, category. Then you have legal or juridical uh, approaches to civil disobedience and this is I mean these are not as as common and that's really what I'm still sort of I guess discovering so so it's it's uh, in, in my in my head it's just a lot less clear so far like what how exactly you would formulate this but essentially they uh, approach it in a way where not some underlying concept of justice is uh, primary but uh, a sort of commitment to a common rule of law mm. and what I'm trying to work towards is arguing that these two approaches are wrong yeah. uh, and that you need a political approach because at the end yeah, of the so day, um, so um, if you have, uh, if you, so if you go to justice, you have an underlying con concept of justice like Rawls did. And maybe it's, it's good to, to hear also again, sort of pause and, and in a very broad sense, see how such conceptions are formed. So basically you have this underlying concept of justice and that is shared among society. And on this basis, institutions are formed and a legal system, laws and, and so on. And they, because they are built on these, on legitimate foundations, namely mm -hmm. justice, they generate a general obligation to obey the law. So that's sort of like the institutions are only an instrument to m sort of make the transition from justice to obligation. And I would like to doubt that there is such a universally shared concept of justice underlying any society. That's one thing. I think a very, uh, but, but I think more important is that a very important possible object of civil disobedience is exactly politicizing justice and sort of drawing a, a concept of justice back into the open and say like, wait, what actually do we mean when we say justice? Mm. And one passage I was, I was reading recently, and I don't remember who, it was a quote, so I don't remember whose it was, but there was, there was someone else who, who objected to using justice as, as the basis of law, and the, of, of basically using justice as that which makes laws legitimate. Uh, and the, what he said was that appealing to justice in this sense is just banging your hand on the table. It's just like, say, you bang your hand on the table, this is unjust, yeah, okay, and then what? So yeah. I would, I, so I would say, like it's useful to bang on the table sometimes. Yeah. If you then follow it with argument, because then you have attention, and yeah. then you ha you can say like, okay, so uh, this is unjust because these and these reasons, because I am also a political subject, for example, in these in the case of we are here. Yeah, uh, you could say that. And I think uh, so with the rule of law thing, this is something I'm still very much working on. But there, I'm sort of, I guess, I, I what I want to argue is that at the end of the day. At least conceptually, the political is, is is conceptually prior to the law. I took note of that because I think this is a great next episode, or a, ah, another episode yeah. with Maxine politicizing justice. <laughs> <It sounds laughs> yeah.
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, okay, yeah, the rule of law. Have um, we also heard some things of, of about populism? But go on, go on. Yeah, there was, oh, I mean, yes. there, there is a very clear connection between yeah. uh, civil disobedience and populism, yeah. I think. So, no, this um, civil disobedience is just, or can be justified on the basis of a, an underlying commitment to the rule of law, because people who disobey certain laws are committed to a certain community who lives together under a, a common rule of law and they see a deficiency in this common rule of law and they address it by disobeying certain laws mm -hmm. so as to eventually improve the common rule of law that, that these people live on. But then, of course, you first have, have the question, okay, who, who's this community who, who wants to live together under a common rule of law? And that is at heart a very political question. So, and yeah. that's a question that you must, like the answer to that question, you must presuppose if you want to sort of um, take the rule of law as, as, as primary. So I, 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 I think you shouldn't take the rule of law as primary, obviously. So that, that's so, sort of what I'm trying to work yeah, towards yeah. Uh, uh, now. And then you, you wanted to... Yeah. No, I'm, I'm just thinking that, uh, you know, in, in a year, we will ask you again what you are working on. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Compare the two recordings. Yeah, yeah. It's nice. It's a yeah. nice archive. And we can see it, yeah, uh, yeah, how yeah, all the developers are here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like it. And then you have, so that's something I was reading up reading up on, on earlier and, and yesterday as well. Um, and it's a very complex concept, but then you get to the concept of constituent power, which is... It's very much a topic in, in constitutionalism, so there is a sort of... It basically so, asks... So, so, you, so you mean, like, if you go to the, the politics prior to the rule of law, then you get also to these theories of constitutionalism, is that what you mean? Of uh, constituted power? Constituent. Well, yes, in, in a sense, yeah. And I guess that's one way to, to frame this, the problem with legally based theories of civil disobedience. So you have this tension between two concepts. You have co uh, constituted power and constituent power. Now, basically, the, the idea of constituent power is generally invoked to answer the question, why do we think, do we think things are democratically legitimate? Why do we think some institutions we have are legitimate? Because they were at least hypothetically authorized by constituent power, which is like the people or something. Yeah. Now, there are a number of problems with this, this concept. Uh, I'm not going to go into them, but the, the guy who, who proposed it back in the times of the French Revolution was a nationalist and also involved in some, some terrorism surrounding the French Revolution. So this has led some to sort of deny the, the relevance of the concepts. But altogether, there is still... Uh, it's, I do think it... it at least to, to, to discard it altogether would be to throw out the baby with the bathwater. So you have this, this, this tension between institutions which are constituted and the power of the people which generally authorizes them, but can also revoke that authorization. Yeah. And that's sort of a, t a tension that's present in, in theories of, of or in, in, in just actual instances of civil disobedience. And I guess in... in that sense, you can see legal, legally based theories of civil disobedience as uh, presupposing that there only is a constituted power and no constituent power. So, mm. no, so there's no collective agent or something that authorizes institutions. So if you apply it to the Extinction Rebellion, I mean, there's, there's people, mm. is the demos again rising up and saying some of these things are not entirely legitimate anymore because it's thing and we don't recognize our government or 
the way you can. Is I'm not be- sure. Is there a better example? I think, well, no, I, th- I think the one problem is that it's a very, it's a ver- fairly small group of people protesting. And as far as I know, yeah. it tends to be a fairly specific demographic. And if you, if you compare it with Lebanon, if that's like, if it's true that here we see like a people coming together. Yeah, so that's actually some sectional divides. Yeah, so that's that's actually something I, I wrote it's down really today that yeah. I can use this as a, as a sort really of fair. example to illustrate like this is this is how this can work actually. Yeah, so they really the whole point is these constituted powers are not derived yeah, from our power. They, they they are not we are not the constituent yeah, of yeah. these constituted powers. Yeah, we sort of we like, don't recognize. Yeah, so you can uh, I guess it, it helps to to sort of consider uh, the concept of legitimacy. There's, I guess, two ways you can see it. One is just it's a function of rules. You follow the rules, it's legitimate, end of story. But you can also add to that perceived legitimacy. If you follow the rules, you're legitimate, but absolutely no one views you as legitimate, your official legitimacy is not going to help you very much. No. So, like, to go, to go to Lebanon, the current Lebanese government could say, like, we are totally legitimate because we followed all the rules to get to the positions of power where we currently are. But if the entirety of Lebanese society doesn't view them as legitimate, they're going to have a problem nonetheless, yeah. of course. So, and that's basically the idea that this, this uh, legitimacy is, in that sense, unstable in the sense that it can be revoked. It's great to have this first recording session that yeah, we've yeah. done, and hope you liked it. Yeah, yeah. thank you very much for joining us. Go, he was, yeah. he was the, the bravest of yeah, all, yeah, I have yeah, to sure. say. Yeah. The only one who was from the beginning until forward. now, yeah, he stepped forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, he had the preparatory meet, he yeah. sorted out the tech. Yeah. Like <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And also had a good radio voice. Very good yeah. voice. Yeah, so if my Very academic great. career fails, then I can always. Uh, <laughs> More ideas to come for the next episode, maybe in the future. Yeah. Uh, Plenty of material. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I guess in, in some respects you never run out of material. No. So. Uh, no, and even if I'm not, the, uh, if I won't be the one talking most of the time, I'd be happy to help other times as well. Yeah, uh, I'd like to see this discussion with someone with a legal background, because you yeah. touched upon law. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's something. So I've, that's something I've been realizing over the past few yeah. weeks is yeah. that just philosophy of law. Like I have some basic ideas and and so on, but but I don't have that much of a background in it yet. But I'm gonna have to engage with it as well because it's. It's simply a very important uh, sub subdivision uh, in philosophy that uh, for for theories of civil disobedience, and you see that because as many influential sort of classical liberal conceptions of civil disobedience came from philosophers of law like like Ronald Dworkin and Joseph Raz, for example. Yeah, that's something I'm going to have to engage with definitely. Yeah, mm. and the populists, like the people who work on populism. Yeah, oh well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I mean, we talked about we talked about like Yeah, yeah. yeah. So briefly. you're in the middle of the of the law and. No, I would say I would say yeah. I'm 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 I position myself like in the the political, yeah. but I'm in the middle of the populist and the law. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps that's you, that's how you could say. But it, is it also sure. because you now have just started out that you have to go to these classic theories of law and like Rawls? Or in a it, sense, or is yeah. It also, is it also something that you subjectively like ascribe to like your heart? Well, Rawls is just like. Is it like a necessary stepping stone, or is it even like a necessary block? like uh, obstacle you have to get past yeah you or i think you could frame it like that it doesn't have to be but it's uh, it's at or least is there something in Rawls that you see that's that's very interesting and relevant for today 
Well, the fact that he's still being read so much. <laughs> yeah, which I object to. Yeah, no, okay, so I mean, he's not totally irrelevant. Just you, not, have, you, you need to read it so you can attack them. In a sense, yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, yeah, just yeah. be honest about... And also, the, the Simply Rawls was, was enormously influential. Yeah, yeah. So, in order to position yourself within a, a debate, you also have to know what you don't agree with and how their arguments are structured and how they come to to whatever they claim is the right approach yeah so that that's part of it yeah yeah and it's so it's it's also useful to and it's then like well because Rawls is is very clear about what he's doing yeah uh, and how he does it and um not everyone is like that so that makes just it makes him easy to uh, to use as a as a sort of stepping stone yeah i'm going to read him as well i think yeah then we can talk about that. Yeah, we can oh, do absolutely. a whole episode. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. 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 That, let's wa- watch more movies and talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, at some point, he was, uh, you know, Maxim was uh, talking about all these intellectual things. Yeah. He was talking about current uh, examples yeah. in uh, yeah. the the world in the <laughs> Europe. Like he had all the historical facts, and all we could say was the Joker movie was fucking amazing. Yeah. 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 I'm not that big on movies. Have you so. ever watched uh, Zizek's uh, The Fairbirds Guy? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, we yeah. talked about that. That's uh, <laughs> long ago, though, but yeah, that's, that's a good one. Have you seen The Fairbirds Guy in the cinema? The Fairbirts Guy to Ideology? I think I've seen The Ideology one, but I'm not sure. Is it the one with uh, this one scene that's taken from uh, The Fall of Berlin, where in the, in the actual film you have Stalin coming out of the plane after having. Uh, this is cinema. Oh, yeah. And then they edit in, and then Jizek is coming out of the. Yeah. Uh, out of the plane. Based on the taxi driver making his uh, yeah.